1: This is the Roy Green Show
0: podcast. A lot of talk this week, and appropriately so, about what happened at a Toronto Blue Jays and Atlanta Braves game. And you know, I'm sure that you followed it. I'm sure that you have an opinion on it. What Kevin Pillar shouted at a Braves relief pitcher. It was a homophobic slur, and it was impossible to miss if you watched it on television. And... uh What has happened since then is that Kevin Pilar has been suspended for two games. Many people feel it should have been more. But he has also very contritely apologized. And we'll pay you a little bit of the apology shortly. But he's very contritely apologized. Didn't try to make excuses. Said, I'm 100% wrong. And that's the right thing to do. But I want to introduce you to Brian Kitts. He is the president and co-founder of You Can Play. And You Can Play was founded uh, by Mr. Kitts. And uh, by Brian Burke, the former general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, Mr. Burke's son, Patrick, after the death of his other son, Brendan, who died at 21 years of age in a car crash. And Brendan had earlier come out and said he was gay. And I, I would imagine, Brian, thank you very much for taking the time. And even though it was hugely objectionable what, uh, what Kevin Pillar did, it has to be... It has to be gratifying to see the response from the players. They challenged him right away on the field. The response from the team to suspend him. The response from Major League Baseball. There's just been a universal condemnation of what Kevin Pillar did, and he did not try to hide and didn't try to say, look, it was the heat of the moment. He just said I'm wrong.
2: Yeah.
3: That's yeah, one of those things where I think uh, athletes specifically and sports in general have moved into a situation where Uh, whether it's race or religion or sexual orientation, gender identity. uh, You don't say those sorts of things because they hurt your teammates, they hurt your fans. And somebody like Kevin uh, did the right thing by uh, owning up to it and talking about how to make it better.
0: And if if kids were watching that game, they clearly would have been aware of of what was said. And the impression that athletes make on kids is something that is – can last with them for a lifetime. And to, to, to see him and hear him say what he said, and then to hear the apology, that will make an impression on the little guys and gals too, which is incredibly important. Remind us, please, of of, of how uh, You Can Play came about, and what were your objectives going in and five years later? I, have you surpassed what you thought you might have within the first five years of the organization?
3: Yeah, you know, I think you summed up the way that we got started Pretty easily, I think, you know, Patrick Burke and I both had younger brothers who were gay and uh, were willing to walk away from their sports because they were afraid of the way they might be treated in a locker room. Um, You know, it's not something that you expect to do as part of your volunteer life, but we saw a chance to start a discussion about the way that athletes treat each other, and you know, once we started that discussion, we found that there were a lot of athletes you know, somebody like Brooks Orpik in the NHL who said not all athletes are homophobic and it's time for that stereotype to change. And so all we really wanted to do was start those discussions within teams, within uh, leagues and, and sports in general about focusing on uh, talent uh, or somebody's skill rather than whether they're gay or straight. And, yeah, I think that we did start that discussion. Um, but then I think that you see that whether it's Andrew Shaw in the NHL last year or Kevin Pilar, you know, this week, we've still got work to do. And you know, it's a long game and, and we're I think we are prepared for that and I think sports is prepared for it.
0: I, I meant to ask you, how often does a Kevin Pilar moment happen in pro sports but just isn't caught on cameras and microphones? And and if it does happen are players and teams largely self-policing now in 2017?
3: I think they are self-policing, and I think it's, you know, fortunately it doesn't happen that often. I think that it happens a lot more in a couple of places that we care about, and that's locker rooms. Um, you know, the way that, especially kids, whether in high school or younger, the way that, uh, it, you know, you talk to each other can make a difference, and it does draw some uh you know, it does have a chance to hurt some athletes in the way that they might participate in sports. Uh, the other thing is in arenas, you know, you could never get away with a racial slur in a, in an arena right now without those sitting around you reacting, but, you know, homophobic slurs still get tossed out pretty regularly. And so we really, you know, we want to make people aware that, you know, it's inappropriate and it does hurt people, uh, you know, in ways that you can't necessarily measure, as Patrick and I both saw with our younger
0: brothers. Are there certain sports where it's more accepted in the locker room and on the field if a player is gay?
3: Not necessarily. I think that a lot of this comes down to, you know, the way that you interact with your teammates in general. And I don't think that it's a sport-by-sport thing. I do think that it's a matter of, You know, athletes taking the responsibility to be out and let their teammates know that they have contributed and that, you know, these are guys who were your friends yesterday. And just because you know something a little different about them today hasn't changed the way that they play hockey or basketball. So, you know, it's the way you react as a teammate, not necessarily on a sport-by-sport basis.
0: Still rare for an athlete to say, and maybe it's more difficult or more challenging, I don't know what the word is necessarily, maybe it's challenging. It, 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 I, I think you hear more about female athletes who will say that they are gay than male athletes. That is that a fair statement? That's just an, observe, an observation.
3: Yeah, I think that uh, it might be fair. I think it also might be a little bit of stereotyping that we all do. Um, I think there's an assumption that male athletes are straight and there are some assumptions that female athletes are lesbian. And, you know, I think that the work that we've done, uh, and this is, you know, this is said by guys who have had, had not had a lot of experience with uh, women's athletics. Uh, you know, we were taken to task uh, early on, and, you know, we're told pretty bluntly that, uh, you know, those stereotypes are, are wrong. Um, so, you know, I think that this is, you know, these are human issues, and it's just a matter of, I think, society moving on and um, teams moving on and actually having these discussions.
0: Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking more, I wasn't thinking along the lines that, that the male athletes aren't necessarily gay and female athletes maybe. I was thinking that maybe women are more willing to um, to express who they are, what they are, what their sexual orientation is than a male athlete. A male athlete may feel that there's going to be more stereotyping of him or it may affect his career if he admits to being gay.
3: Yeah, I think that could be. And I think that for whatever reason, there's a lot more media attention that is put on male athletes who come out. And I think that's one of the things that we wish didn't happen. Um, you know, I think you look at you know, guys like Michael Sam, who, whether it was in the NFL or the CFL, yeah, you know, the amount of media pressure that's on one individual at one time—I think, you know—I don't think any of us would be interested in putting up with that. And so, I think that that male athletes are under that uh, microscope a little more intently. and so that may be where a lot of these impressions come from.
0: When you started out, um, whether you can play, was there any concern that maybe? it wouldn't be accepted that that, that that what you were trying to accomplish would not be possible given what people you know what people how people would express themselves to each other. was there any doubt that, that you'd have the kind of success that you've had in the five years you've been in existence?
3: I think we assumed that there that we wouldn't uh, that there wouldn't be this type of success um, you know when we started we were hoping that we could get uh, five or six NHL players, Uh, to go on camera and make a video for us and we were willing to start the discussion that way and uh, call it done Um, I think that once that you know once our first video came out with several of the NHL All-Stars that I think whether it's timing or where we were as societies it was a discussion that people were willing to have and you know, here we are five years later and have formal relationships with the NHL and the CFL. And, you know, the NFL has been great to us and the Canadian Olympic Committee, um, you know, hockey in, in all of its forms. And, you know, it just felt like uh, sort of that next step in, e- in equality. And, you know, I think our message was simple, too, that your sexual orientation shouldn't matter as long as you can contribute to your sport. Uh, or your, your team's success, and you know that's an easy thing to understand, regardless of whether you thought about LGBT issues or not. You know, it's all in the context of sports and winning.
0: Yeah, Brian, I remember 1995. The Ontario provincial election was actually turned, I think, on the question on a question about um, about uh, uh, gay marriage. It, it it essentially created the the uh, the landscape for the Liberal Party's loss in the province of Ontario because they got caught up in the question of, of gay marriage. And now, you know, 22 years later in the province of Ontario and in Canada, nobody really talks about it anymore. In, in general society, it's just the way it is. You know, people are who they are.
3: Yeah, and I think that, again, like I said a few minutes ago, we look at this as a long game and, you know, Understandably, it takes people's, especially masses of people, time to change their minds. And so I think issues of race and gender and uh, homosexuality, you know, people get used to it the more they think about it. And the more people they know who might be uh, from the LGBT community, um, it's slow, but slow. Sh- steady process or progress. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, we recognize and appreciate.
0: Brian, thanks for the time, Uh, co-founder and president of You Can Play. Well done. Good, good work over five years. And there has been a societal change. And to hear, to hear Kevin Pilar speak as, as directly, as forthrightly as he did about, about what he did is going to go a long way, particularly with young athletes. Thanks, Brian. All the best.
3: Thank
0: you. appreciate it. Well, uh, Brian Kitts is the uh, president and co-founder of You Can Play.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: So if you take it off the playing fields, if you take it out of the arenas, the ballparks, and you take it into the workplace where you go every day to do your job, if you're at work and someone uh, delivers a homophobic slur to another employee, what are your options? What can happen? Are you protected at all? Now, Lior Samfiro joins us. He's an employment law specialist, a lawyer you hear on this radio station, um, every week from Samfiro to Mark LLP in Toronto. And, uh, Lior, thank you for taking the time. Good thank to you. talk to you. It's been a while. Always my pleasure. Now, so, so you're in the workplace. You go to work, and let's say you go to work on Monday or Tuesday, any week, and somebody issues a homophobic slur, whether or not you're gay, you get, you get, particularly if you're gay, and somebody guesses it, and and they not just once, but repeatedly issue a homophobic slur, what are your options?
4: Well, first of all, uh, Roy, uh, the law is very clear that uh, an employer does have an obligation to maintain and uh protect, and ensure that there's a workplace that's free of any discrimination, any harassment, whether it's uh, harassment on the basis of uh, sexual orientation or otherwise. Human rights legislation in this province and in every province makes that very clear. As an employee, then you have a right to work in a, in a workplace that's, uh, that doesn't subject you to mistreatment or, or potentially to even the risk of having someone uh, discriminate, harass you based on your sexual orientation. As an employee, the first thing you would want to do is you want to make sure that your employer is aware of these issues. The duty of on the employer doesn't really get triggered if they're not aware. Once you you advise your employer of what happened, the, the ball shifts to the employer's court, and the employer at that point has to investigate and take measures to the extent that the, the allegation is corroborated. That may mean providing. Uh, a reminder to everyone of the expectations, the policies, the uh, code of conduct in the workplace, up to discipline, which may even include termination in some situations. Uh, but the bottom line is, an employer certainly cannot ignore these issues. There are serious issues, and gone are the days where an employer can say, "Oh, you know, boys will be boys or kids will be kids. That's just unacceptable."
0: Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that uh, that doing it once is okay, because if it happens once, you have the option to ask for assistance or support from your employer?
4: You absolutely do, and from an employer standpoint, uh, if we're talking about a person who one time did something that he wasn't supposed to, very much like uh, Mr. Pilar, that does or should inform your actions. You're not going to terminate an employee that uh, one time used very bad judgment. On the other hand, if this is a, a what I call a repeat offender, so you've provided this employee with warnings, You've reminded them what the expectations were. You've done what you could, and they clearly don't get it. At that point, yes, the employer may resort to the worst punishment, which is a termination for cause. One thing I want to point out when it comes to these issues, uh, if, you, if as an employer, if you're going to take measures, it is important that those measures uh, be seen to be taken. So if you take the employee and have a closed-door conversation, uh, you may not have sent the right the right message out there. I suspect that's what happened with the, with the Toronto Blue Jays, it wasn't so much that they thought that this requires a suspension, but we need, you know, they thought we need people to see what they, where. This is unacceptable. We have fans, we have stakeholders, sponsors. We're part of the community, uh, and the same thing applies to employers. You want to send that message to the others in the workplace that this is unacceptable. The best way to do that is when you become aware of a problem, you want others to see that you've dealt with it, you've taken serious measures, uh, and this is not something you're just going to sit on.
0: Leah, where's the line between insult and slur?
4: It is a very difficult line sometimes to to, to observe. Anything that uh, that infringes uh, or or touches on a, on a human right, then arguably is a slur. So if I uh, insult someone's intelligence, for example, the law would not consider that to be a slur because. Uh, there's no protection under our human rights legislation based on someone's intelligence. But, but if I insult someone based on their sexual orientation or, or um, sex or race or disability, well, that crosses the line into a slur, into illegal potential conduct. And those types of conduct, uh, the employer must take more seriously. Now, now, it's not just about uh, ensuring that employees get along. It's also ensuring that the employer itself is in compliance with, with its obligation to maintain a workplace a workplace that's free from any discrimination.
0: Are you noticing that there's a change, a societal change, taking place? Are there less incidents, or is there still a significant number of, uh, of, of problematic um, prob- issues going on out there?
4: I, I see these issues, uh, Roy, unfortunately, every day. Uh, I do see them happen all the time. And uh, oftentimes, uh, or more often now, employers become more aware of, of their obligations and take them seriously. I still see these old-fashioned employers where, you know, back in my days, we could do that and it was fine. That's obviously not acceptable anymore. And and you know, as as you know, new people are in management position and HR positions, they become aware of these issues. So I, I have seen over the past few years. A shift in employers taking these things seriously, imposing remedies and, and discipline when needed rather than ignoring them. But there is still an alarming number of employers that ignore them. Invariably, that might result in a human rights complaint, potential other legal action. It's just a bad idea to ignore these issues.
0: All right. So, for the person who's the victim of the slur, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to go home and worry about it at night and worry about going to work the next day. You have options, and your employer has responsibilities.
4: That's exactly right, but it does start informing your employer, uh, and and you've, once you've done that, you really do shift that onus to the employer. You certainly, as an employee, have a right to work in a in a supportive and a uh, equal work environment, not a poison work environment. You certainly don't have to suffer in peace. Uh, the law does uh, recognize these incidents now provides protections. You just have to avail yourself of those protections by engaging your employer.
0: All right. And uh, for anybody who's listening now who says, I'd like to get Mr. Samfiru's advice, how do they best get in touch with you?
4: Well, they can always go to uh, my firm's website, which is stlawyers.ca, or they can email me at uh, Lior at stlawyers.ca.
0: All right. Leor, good talking to you again, and uh, and, and we'll do it again. Thank you so much, Roy. Always a pleasure. All the best. Lior ca, stlawyers.ca, Lawyers. You're listening
1: to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. That was a tremendous day. I just want to thank everybody, but tremendous investments in, to the United States and our military.
0: So there's the President of the United States in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia today, and they signed billions and billions of dollars worth of... Uh, deals with the U.S. And yet, when I read reports in American media, the predictable sources, it's all about James Comey, it's all about White House troubles, it's all about uh, Donald Trump facing uh, God knows what he's facing, and it goes on and on and on and on, and unnamed sources, unnamed sources didn't want to be identified, wanted to remain anonymous because... And the Washington Post, I will never forget this. The Washington Post wrote a story about Donald Trump a couple of days ago, and there were 30 unnamed sources, 30 unnamed sources in the story. And then the, whoever it was from the Washington Post, was on CBC. They were getting along marvelously. And the Washington Post person said that it was a better story because of the unnamed sources that ladies and gentlemen is known as fiction fiction fake news name one source please please it's not impossible anyway mr. Trump is uh, has his problems and he creates many for himself His Twitter account is is something that has helped him, has also hurt him, and he does cause problems for himself. When he was in the Oval Office and he had the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office and he kicked out the American media, I know he was trying to make a point, but it doesn't look good when the only photographs, and TASS was the agency, the Russian news agency was there, and they took these photographs of the three of them just yucking it up. Apparently, he had some negative things to say about former FBI director James Comey. But so did the Democrats. So did Hillary Clinton. They didn't like James Comey until they liked him. And uh, there's going to be a lot going on in the U.S., of course, that has to do with the president of the United States. Meanwhile... Barack Obama, whose very close friend was a convicted domestic terrorist by the name of William Ayers. That wasn't mentioned very much by American mainstream media. No, 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 no. That wasn't a problem. That a convicted terrorist is at Obama's house for dinner. It's not a problem. And Mr. Obama attended a church for 20 years where the minister shouted, God damn America, wasn't a problem. Mr. Obama saying he never heard the minister say that, anything like that, in 20 years. so no, absolutely. We absolutely believe Mr. Obama. And then there was Mr. Obama talking to the outgoing puppet president of the United States, Medvedev, or whatever his name is, Medvedev, and said essentially a few years ago, tell Vladimir I just have to go through one more election, then I can do whatever I want. Not a problem. No, 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 not a problem and delivering many millions of dollars to Iran in a hostage release? No. Perfectly fine, it's President Obama. It's the American boy king. We have our own here. Claire Lopez is a former CIA operative and she may be one of Donald Trump's more controversial supporters because of what she says. See, if you don't agree with the left, then you're controversial. If you agree with the left, you're perfectly fine. She was an advisor to Ted Cruz during his presidential campaign, now is the vice president of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, and I hear was shortlisted as possibly the deputy s- security advisor to President Donald Trump. It's been quite a while since I've spoken with uh, Ms. Lopez. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Claire, thank you for taking the time.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be back with you.
0: So, uh, what's your view of the never-ending attacks on Donald Trump? And, and, and I said, and please say what's on your mind. I know you won't hesitate to do so. Sometimes he's his own worst enemy. But what about these never-ending attacks? And the Washington Post and the New York Times seem to be at the pointy end of the stick. And they are constantly running stories, headline stories, with unnamed sources. What do you make of that?
2: Well, for the left, uh, in this country, which the mainstream media and, and those outlets you mentioned, you know, uh, what what they represent, uh, for them, the Trump presidency is their worst nightmare. Uh, he stands for traditional American values. He was elected because the regular American patriot, the ordinary people, in what is sometimes derisively referred to as flyover country, that is the majority of the country in the middle, not the coastlines, voted for him because they wanted to be heard. They wanted to be part of America, to feel part of America again, not to be disregarded, not to be disrespected. And he promised that. And I think that he is doing his best to, to follow through on the, the, those promises. And that is the worst nightmare for uh, the, the left in this country, which... Uh, wants to tear down traditional American principles and uh, substitute in their place something globalist, I guess, or directed by the United Nations, or or something that is not American that is not to be found in our Declaration or Constitution and Bill of Rights. Those documents to them are are musty and old, and and, and they should be either updated, you know, um, or disregarded. And uh, Trump's not going to do that. Trump's not doing that. And in particular, his uh, attorney general pick, uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, has already come out um, with some very strong statements about reestablishing the rule of law and order. That means the law derived from the Constitution. That's what the left cannot stand.
0: And those are laws passed by Congress. Well, certainly. So he's not making them up on the fly they're they're in the books they just haven't been enforced by left wing uh, what left- wing president who's been in the White House over the past eight years and probably not tremendously enforced I'm starting to start with donald trump uh not not necessarily uh f- forcefully enforced by george bush
2: right and and there is a turn uh, away from those policies now uh, getting underway. Um, yes, there are some slips and 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 uh mistakes along the way to be expected, but the general course of things is on track. It is toward reestablishing America's place in the world. We're seeing that today as the president begins uh, his uh, multi-country trip, uh, beginning with Saudi Arabia, where um, I I hope that that many of the listeners um, may have already seen some of the images coming out of Saudi Arabia, where the president... President Donald J. Trump stands straight and tall and shakes the hand of King Salman, who then turns and shakes the hand of our beautiful First Lady, Melania Trump, who is not wearing a hijab. So reestablishing our status, our influence.
0: As opposed to Mr. And, Obama, and Obama who...
2: leadership in the world.
0: Yeah, as opposed to Mr. Obama who bowed deeply to the uh, Saudi Arabian king.
2: Very stark contrast there so that that's abroad um of course the the president's next stops will take him to israel our number one top uh ally in the middle east and the only functioning democracy um in in the region uh and then onwards uh, to places in europe for for further stops um so that's abroad but 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 at home it's the reestablishment the reassertion Uh, of rule of law that I think is so important here. Uh, A lot of work to be done yet. Um, Obviously, a lot of personnel are not in place yet. Um, One would like to see things move faster. Of course, we we always do. Um, But the direction is is the the right one.
0: Claire, what I hear repeatedly, if I uh, go to mainstream media organizations that lean left, which is most of them, What I hear repeatedly is references to the intelligence community. Seventeen intelligence agencies have unanimously said that Donald Trump has some sort of relationship with the Russians, that he's uh, disloyal to to the United States. You're a former CIA operative. Uh, Seventeen intelligence agencies... What are they really talking about? Do we have 17 major intelligence agencies who are uh, bitterly opposed to the president of the United States, or or, or is there something else going on?
2: Well, I mean, in the first place, the reference to 17 U.S. um, intelligence agencies, these are the 17 that make up the intelligence um, community in the United States, including everything from, Uh, CIA, DIA, FBI, Department of State, and so on, um, those 17 never signed off on anything. If you go back and look at at, at what is really being cited, you had three agencies signing off, CIA, FBI, and I think the third might have been DHS, uh, and I, I, I need to check on that to be sure, but it was not. 17, it was these three um, speaking on behalf of, but typically when a united, a, 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 uh, a statement comes out that really and truly is representative of the 17, there will always, I mean bar none, always be some uh, dissenters. There will always be some comment within, well, this agency uh, does not subscribe uh, to the full judgment of whatever just came before. Uh, dissent. There was none. Because why? Because only three uh, uh, were, were, were making that, that statement, that judgment. Uh, and even there, um, the, the, the statement was not that the, uh, that President Trump himself or those close to him uh, colluded with Russians um, in in uh, the last uh, election, which is absolute absurdity that never happened. Uh, I'm not even certain that the Russians interfered in the last election, much less colluded with the Trump team.
0: If there's any uh, any interference in elections, one could point to Barack Obama interfering with the Israeli election.
2: Well he certainly did. I mean it, it, two, two wrongs wouldn't make a right, but in this case, you know, I don't know of any corroborated validated evidence, that the Russians actually did interfere in our election. Do you think Russians try to uh, hack into any unguarded uh, cyber system they can possibly get their little fingers into? Yeah, of course, all the time. Uh, does that mean that they interfered in our elections? No, of course not. And as as we now are hearing, finally getting its its uh, the publicity it deserves is the story of Seth Rich, the young um, Democratic National Committee. Uh, staffer, who was murdered in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., last year, uh, uh, shortly before WikiLeaks began to publish a whole bunch of uh, emails, in particular from John Podesta, uh, but others associated with the Democrats, uh, Hillary Clinton and, and others. Um, and the, uh, the allegation, at least, is the um, strong inference here, including from an in, uh, an interview done by Sean Hannity Fox, Sean Hannity, uh, with Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, is that, no, the Russians were not uh, hacking into the DNC, or, or if they were, they were not the source of those emails. Seth Rich was, and that's why he was murdered.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Claire Lopez is with me, vice president of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, former CIA operative. Um, Claire, James Comey, where does he fit into the picture? Because now the former FBI director is going to be testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee. What's likely to happen?
2: Well, I don't know. Uh, But uh, he has played, obviously, a very key central role in a lot of the drama over the past uh, couple of years and certainly during the presidential campaign of 2016 um, and is in a position within, uh, you know, his former position as director of of the FBI within the intelligence community um, to have been party um, to a lot of uh, what went on um, in terms of uh, intelligence, uh, leaking, Uh, unmasking all of these different issues, uh, he would have been at the center of all of that. And so uh, it's interesting that his testimony is going to be before an open session of Congress, Uh, not quite uh, scheduled yet on the calendar, but but coming up fairly soon, I think.
0: And as far as media treatment of Donald Trump is concerned vis-a-vis treatment of Barack Obama, what do you want to say about that?
2: Well, I mean, the president has got it exactly right. There's never been a president that I can, I can recall that's ever been treated so badly, so unfairly, and so untruthfully um, by the media. But, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they were all in the tank uh, for Hillary Clinton and uh, desperately wanted her to win and were all uh, desperately unhappy when she didn't um but it goes beyond being disappointed in the outcome of an election i mean this is approaching a point of real divisiveness in in this country that i i think is is um n- certainly not not healthy it, it it's it's uh, pulling us further and further apart um rather than as most of the time happens after an election um the country pulls together or at least makes some effort to do so behind whomever has been elected president. That's not happening this time. The divisions uh, are being um, widened, are being stoked by the by the mainstream media and uh, other forces of the left. Um, that, uh, as we you know spoke about earlier right. in the uh, in the show, um, are, are are simply viscerally opposed to everything um, fundamental, you know, principles, core principles of this. United States Republican right. Claire I'm
0: I'm going to have to stop I'm going to have to stop you because of the clock but I do appreciate you coming on the show and I hope you'll come back.
2: Okay, thanks very much.
0: Thanks all all the best to you. Claire Lopez, former CIA operative.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Donald Trump uh, is beginning his Middle East visit today in Saudi Arabia and was warmly received by the Saudi Arabian government. He was given a specific civilian honor, a medal. And after he leaves Saudi Arabia, he'll be heading to Israel. And if it's a direct flight from Riyadh to uh Tel Aviv, it's going to be the first, I believe, the first flight, the first such direct flight from Saudi Arabia to Israel. rahim Fukara is the Washington Bureau chief of Al Jazeera. And we've spoken with Mr. Fukara on a number of occasions over the years. And glad to have him back with us. Abdurrahim, thank you for the time. As you, as you look at the current administration in Washington, how different, are, and what's going on in the world and, and with the with Mr. Trump in, in, in charge of the United States government, how different a reality is are we seeing now over anything you might have seen before in your tenure with Al Jazeera in Washington?
1: Hi, Roy. Everything seems to be different um, about this, Uh, um, administration its first uh, 120 days or or so um, in uh, office. It's been uh, tumultuous um, in ways that seem to be unprecedented. There's been confrontation um, between uh, the White House, uh, including the, the president and the media, in ways that are perhaps reminiscent of uh, the early 70s between the media and uh, uh, Richard Nixon. Um, Everything, almost everything, it's just a different different style um, of doing things, rightly or wrongly. But uh, Washington seems to be just as tumultuous as the region that the president uh, is now uh, visiting um, a few years ago, if you told people, uh, if you used the image about the shifting sands in Washington, they would have said, no, that's more a, an image that applies to the Middle East. Now it, it's it's appropriate to use them both for, for Washington and for the Middle East. Every day brings something new in, in, in Washington, especially uh, with regard to uh, investigations into allegations that the Russians Uh, had something to do with uh, the way uh, U.S. elections, the last presidential election panned out here uh, uh, in the the United States. Every day, new revelations uh, uh, splashed across the media, and you get uh, reactions and counter-reactions between the media and and the White House. I must say, it, it makes for as confusing as it is, it just makes for a fascinating uh, time uh, for us uh, as journalists trying to cover both the administration and our own behavior as media trying to cover that administration. Yeah, I true. would say unprecedented is, 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 a, is an appropriate word here.
0: So when you look at the region where Mr. Trump is now, the Middle East, which is shifting sands, you never know from not necessarily day to day, but maybe month to month what may or may not occur or may or may not be signaled. How do you think, if you strip away the, um, the pump and the ceremony and the expected handshakes and, and greetings, if you strip away the veneer, how are the, the governments of the Middle East, which are, apart from Israel, very different to the governments of the West, how are they assessing, viewing Donald Trump? Are they afraid of him? Do they respect him? Are they just unsure? How, how do you think that they're 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 seeing this new president
1: well there are at least two things uh, to be said there one is that they know that he's coming um from a, a, a situation which is extremely uncomfortable to him at home um you know with all the the tumult about the investigations that i just uh, mentioned having said that um they especially the saudis uh, in particular you know, in terms of the symbolism of it, for the President of the United States to make uh, Saudi Arabia a Muslim country as his uh, first destination, official destination uh, since taking uh, office is obviously of a huge symbolic importance to the the Saudis. But obviously, uh, he uh, goes there having made a, a lot of Um, uh, um, remarks that especially during the campaign that people in that part of the world did not appreciate made a lot of negative remarks about islam and muslims and here he is now visiting a major muslim country from which he will address the muslim uh, world and he he would have to say some nice nice things about relations between the united states and the muslim world so this is hugely important for the saudis uh, in terms of the symbolism in terms of uh, the substance the the one of the most important things for the saudis obviously is to have a president who is not making nice with the iranians Uh, the saudis feel that uh, uh, president obama got too close to the iranians made nice with them at the expense uh, of them as saudis as uh, uh, of them a Sunni country, Iran being a, a Shia country. So they are pinning a lot of President uh, Trump having severely criticized the nuclear deal that the Obama administration had concluded with the Iranians, and having said uh, over and over again that while he's not going to tear up the, the, the nuclear agreement with the Iranians, Uh, He wants to counter their influence uh, regionally in places such as uh, uh, Iraq and uh, Yemen and uh, uh, elsewhere in the region. And that's very important to the Saudis. So they are investing a lot of capital, uh, both political capital, but also uh, money. A lot of uh, agreements um, have been signed by uh, the Saudis and President Trump. Um, some people are talking about uh, for over $400 billion uh, in agreements with uh, the United States. It's a hugely uh, important uh, uh, visit. Whether all these things will actually pan out uh, in the political realities of relations between the United States and the Middle East remains to be seen. Um, but definitely the, the governments, at least in that part of the world, they see uh, in President Trump something... Uh, they see in him a different quantity from what they had seen in President Obama. Uh, many of them saw in President Obama as somebody who stood by and let the Arab Spring roll through several countries with the, 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 the chaos that resulted from them as, as far as they uh, uh, describe it with Trump they see uh, they see hope remains to be seen if that hope. Uh, will actually be justified or
0: not. All right. Abdurrahim, I thank you for the time. Uh, I I'd like to speak with you again soon, not leave it as long as we have last time in in the past. I'd like to have you back and uh, and assess what's happening in Washington going forward. Thanks for the time today.
1: Always a pleasure to talk to you and your audience, uh, Roy. Thank
0: you. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Abdurrahim Fukara is the Washington Bureau Chief. Of Al Jazeera, he really is an excellent journalist.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Unnamed sources, unnamed sources. I've not seen this term as frequently for a long, long time, if ever, as I see it now. A constant repeat in news accounts, particularly by two news organizations, The Washington Post and The New York Times. Washington Post ran a story which became a huge Trump association with Russia talking point, which included 30 unnamed sources, and uh, one of the people specifically involved in the ethics of the Washington Post, talking to the CBC, and this person said, "The 30 unnamed sources make it a better story." Well, I'll tell you what, I can write. It's called now. Hang on. Let me let me let me say this. I can write a, a, an entertaining, exciting, and uh, and good story by citing unnamed sources. It might even be more exciting to you in a better read than if I named all the sources. It's called the Brian Williams Syndrome. Okay, now some rational thinking on this issue and bringing that, delivering that, is our good friend, Professor Jane Kirtley. Professor of Media Ethics and the Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Jane, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for the time.
5: Thank you, Roy. It's a pleasure.
0: So, uh, inject some reason uh, into, into my uh, wobbly brain here. Is it acceptable for the Washington Post to write a headline story ripping the U.S. president and referencing 30 unnamed sources?
5: I don't know if 30 is the record. Uh, It's certainly a lot. I would disagree with whoever told the CBC that the more the merrier, basically. It's certainly true that, you know, we say as a matter of convention that uh, journalists should have two and preferably three sources for any uh, kind of allegations they're going to make that, especially defamatory ones, not just critical, but things that would really harm somebody's reputation. Um, and so maybe they were thinking that citing all of these unnamed sources would, would add greater credibility. But, you know, it, it, this is not a new phenomenon, as, as you know. Uh, the Post and the New York Times with its Washington Bureau, and frankly, other news organizations with Washington Bureaus, often fall into this trap of using anonymous sources. What scares me a bit about this particular situation is that given the, let's just try to use a neutral word here, the unusual nature of the way the Trump administration communicates with the press, that I would be very concerned if I were a journalist that I was being fed disinformation. That's always a risk. You know, any time a source asks for anonymity or confidentiality, they are probably doing it for reasons that have little to do with enlightening the public and a lot to do with their own agendas. But it seems to me that these days um, we're particularly vulnerable to that because we have seen different versions of the same story come out officially from the Trump administration. So I guess I would say that putting aside just the general uh, lack of wisdom of relying on on unnamed sources and expecting readers to consider that credible – I think news organizations that do that run a, a much higher risk than perhaps was the case previously. That they will be the unwitty, uh, unwitting uh, foils of those who are trying to uh, give them bad information with the express purpose of discrediting the news media as an institution.
0: Yeah, I was thinking as I as I uh, read about. I didn't specifically, intentionally didn't read the story itself when I heard about the thirty unnamed sources. But what occurred to me was, how can you write a cohesive message? How can you deliver a cohesive message if you're going to be relying on 30 unnamed sources? Is it because you went and sought out people who who substantially supported the position you wanted to take when you started to write the story, or is it was just happenstance? It worries me that... That maybe there's a a direction determined for a story and then the editor says, now go out and find the people who will substantiate the position we want to take even if we don't have to name – even if we can't name them.
5: Well, I, I certainly, obviously, am not privy to how the editorial process is going in these newsrooms, and I can't rule that out as a possibility. I, You know, back when I was working as a journalist, what I was much more likely to be instructed was if I had, you know, a particularly uh, inflammatory allegation or something, even if it was a named source, my editor would say, okay, now go out and, and look for the other side, right. you know, get a response uh, or whatever, but, you know, don't just... Find the things that will confirm uh, your initial thesis. Look for the things that would challenge it as well.
0: And we should point out that there's a significant difference between a reporter and, a, and, a, um, and, and an opinions journalist. There's a, there's a, a big the major divide between the two. The opinions journalist says what he or she feels uh, is going on. The reporter goes out and finds the actual nuts and bolts and places them in a, in a row.
5: That's true, at least historically that's been true, although I I truly think that with many news media, uh, you know, regardless of where you think they fit on the political spectrum, we're seeing more and more of a blur between those two. But even an opinion columnist uh, has an obligation not to make things up. And you and I have talked in the past about some spectacular examples where columnists were – fabricating facts. So mm-hmm. while I agree that the standard is not exactly the same, that, they, that certainly they have the right and, and indeed the obligation to provide their opinions, um, that doesn't uh, exonerate them from uh, good journalism in terms of, of gathering and verifying the facts that they're going to be relying no, on. It
0: just made me think of the term alternate facts.
5: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> it's a, it's, that's a beauty. That's going to survive forever. Also made me think about the time we talked about the Toronto Star, and the Toronto Star reporters, the two reporters, went and saw the video of, uh, of uh, then-Mayor Rob Ford. But the Star refused to purchase the video, but then wrote condemning uh, pieces afterward. And, and I remember you had issues, really significant issues with that.
5: Well, I, I do, because, again, it, go, it goes back to this. And certainly there are going to be times when a journalist cannot acquire, uh, you know, the piece of paper or the tape or whatever for a whole variety of reasons that, that we don't even need to think about. But the idea is, especially these days, where publishing on the Internet for mainstream organizations is becoming second nature, the public has come to expect, and I think rightfully so, that if you're going to make an allegation, you you ought to have something to to bear it out. And, I mean, I've already seen this in the context of, uh, you know, the Comey memos about his conversations with Donald Trump. I've seen people write, you know, comments, reader comments, saying, well, where's this memo? You know, when do we get to see it? That kind of thing. And, you know, whether that's a reasonable expectation or not, that's the reality. That's what people are expecting these days. And if you can't produce that, you better be in a really, really good position to be able to say, I can authenticate this. I can verify this. And what worries me about this, you know, panoply of unnamed sources, it's one thing to have one or two trusted sources that you've developed over a 30-year career that you know are reliable. But the sheer number here suggests that a lot of these people probably are sources that have not had prior relationships with these journalists. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it, it raises a lot of issues.
0: Well, also, when I saw the 30, again, the 30 unnamed sources I thought the once the story is published the people not only the 30 unnamed sources but folks everywhere who want to plant a story will look at that news organization as being perfectly available to them to plant a story because they're quite willing to write about unnamed sources.
5: Well, you you have to draw, you know, that to a, a conclusion that I think could reasonably be drawn. I suspect that the post of the times would say that Again, you you don't understand what we uh, what processes we go through to verify our sources to verify what they're telling us. Um, you know, trust us on this. Uh, we're credible news organizations, and we would not pass along something that that we didn't have confidence in. Mm-hmm. But of course, both the Times and the Post have had a number of rather spectacular examples of getting something wrong. Whether they were played, whether they were just careless, I don't really know. But all of this erodes credibility, and at, at this critical juncture in the United States history, the last thing we need is more to undermine public confidence in the press. And, and I'm sure some of your listeners are laughing that I would even say that. But truly, I think there, there is still a belief that uh, the role of the news media is to provide independent review, act as a watchdog, and so forth. But if we keep you know publishing stuff without uh, verifying it and without letting our readers know as much as possible about the sources, we do run the risk of eroding whatever confidence they still have.
0: And one or two media organizations can cause problems for everybody else by uh, by absolutely. their
1: absolutely
0: by yes, their erratic behavior or by their agendas. Okay. And when you look at the Washington Post and the New York Times, particularly, they've been on Donald Trump's case since the very beginning and they've made it they've made him their target month after month, month after month, story after story and it gets to the point where you say I really don't believe in the objectivity of this organization because editorially they've taken a position. Washington Post, we know the owner of the Washington Post, is also the owner of Amazon.com. He has no use for Donald Trump. The stories in the Washington Post are constantly anti-Donald Trump. You start to—the consumer starts to say, who can I believe?
5: Well, I, I think that there certainly is a drumbeat coming uh, from, you know, the Trump base and those media that have supported Trump um, saying exactly what you've just described. And I, I guess my point would be that while I may disagree with that characterization, and, and in fact I do, because I think, you know, I think the reporting on Trump was not nearly vigorous enough um, during the period of time when he was seeking the nomination. So, you know, reasonable people can differ on this. But, but the point being that it, you know uh, uh, president trump has used inflammatory phrases like enemy of the people and the the opposition press and so forth i mean he, to, in some to some extent he and his followers have kind of staked out this position of if if you're being a watchdog, if you're monitoring and reporting what I'm doing and saying that makes you the enemy. It doesn't make you the enemy. It makes you what the press is supposed to be, which is the watchdog who's trying to keep an independent eye. But I agree that if it looks like it's it's an attack that isn't based in fact, then you are very vulnerable to that kind of
0: activity. Yeah, I've often said if it pees on a lamppost, it's probably a dog. (laughs)
5: Yeah, well, I I can't argue with that.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Jane. I appreciate the time. Have a great weekend.
4: Thanks,
0: Roy. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Professor Jane Kirtley from the University of Minnesota, ethics professor. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.